You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You all need to understand. I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of the famous legends and tales, and even some would call it jokes, that are taught about the disputes between the Jews and the priests that would take place over the years. So, for example, the famous story about the, the priest who comes before the king and says that the Jews are not really the Jews, and the Jews, of course, say, of course we're the Jews, and we are the same Jews, and so the priest would challenge them to different kinds of debates and disputes. And the priests, they were trained in this area. The Jews... They were not trained in the world of dispute, and so it was a very dangerous thing. So when the, the one day the priest comes to the king and says, "I want to challenge um, the Jews to a silent debate, a silent debate." So the uh, king says, "That sounds like a good idea. We're going to have a silent debate. The Jews are to present a volunteer, someone who's going to have the silent debate." And uh, all the Jews are sitting around and talking, and everyone's scared. Because the priest, he's trained in these kinds of things, and the Jews are not. And if you... So, this one Jew, the schlepper, at the back of the room, who is, well, let's call him the town Am Haaretz, the guy who knows nothing, he says, I've got this. I've got this. They don't have a choice. None of them are willing to do it. He's willing to do it. All right, let him go and do it. And so they come and they sit down. You've all heard this one version of this or another, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, the, the, they sit down and, and the priest is on one side of the table and this, and this uh, um, uh, Jew is on the other side of the table and the priest lifts up his hand like this. Makes an open hand. Ah, okay. Right? And the, the Jew makes a fist like this. So the priest points out three fingers. And the Jew responds by pointing one finger. So the priest points upward. And the Jew responds by pointing downward. And the priest thinks for a minute. And he pulls out an apple and he puts it on the table. And the Jew pulls out a matzah. And he puts it on the table. And the priest looks at this and he gets up and he storms off. He's upset because he lost the debate. So later when the priest is meeting with all of his friends, they say to him, what happened there? He says, I don't know who the Jews sent, but they sent the most brilliant person in the world. Because I made a hand like this that says, the Jews are dispersed throughout the whole world. And he made a fist saying that even though we're dispersed through the whole world, we're united. So I had to think of something that I knew he wouldn't understand. So I, I said three, meaning the Christian belief, that there are multiple, um, you know, three aspects, the concept of the Trinity. And he went like this, meaning that there's only one God. And so I understood this guy's this guy uh, something special. So I said to him, I said to him, your God is, is, is in heaven. You know, he's up there. He wants nothing to do with you. And he pointed downward. The Jew pointed downward and said, No, God is with us all the time and he's protecting us. So I was stuck. That was it. That was my whole, all my art. Then I thought and I remembered. I said, I had my secret 
thing, meaning if the Jew is going to keep up, so he put the apple on the table, and the apple represents the original sin of Adam and Chava eating from the tree, and, and then he pulled out the matzah, showing that they fixed all the terrible sins that were done by Adam and Chava, they fixed it with the slavery in Egypt, and the exodus and Yitziat Mitzrayim. And at that point, said the priest, I had nothing left, the Jews sent their biggest scholar, and I lost. That's it. What can I do? Meanwhile, in the shul, they're all cheering for the Amaretz who saved them. And they said to him, what happened there? So he says, it's really very simple. He made a fist like this, where he was threatening. He was going to slap me. So he made an open hand like this. So I made a fist, as if to say, just you wait till I give you a punch. So he put out three fingers. Three fingers, meaning he's going to hit me three times. And by the third time, I'll be knocked out. So I said to him, I only need one. So you'll already be out by the first one. So he, he pointed upward, and he said he's going to kill me, and he's going to send me to heaven. So I showed him where I'm going to be sending him. And they said, and what happened next? So he said, he put an apple on the table. He said, no, and? He said, I don't know, he stopped for lunch, so I stopped for lunch. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a story, it, 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 it's so funny, but it's so sad that this, uh, this was on some level a reality that we had to deal with. I remember a similar one, um, there, the, the story is told about the priest who claimed that the Jews, they don't know, the, they don't know Torah. Like they claim to be the Jews, but they don't even know basic Torah. So he was going to challenge the Jews, and this is the way the challenge was going to go. The, the, the Jew and the priest would stand on the edge of a bridge that was high above the water. And each one would say to the other one an expression from Tanakh. And the first person to not be able to answer the question would be, would be, would be pushed off the bridge. That was the, that was the debate. So none of the Jews wanted it, because these priests, they know Tanakh, but, you know, the Jews, we know Torah, but not necessarily, is there a Jew that knows all of Tanakh as well as the, as the priests? So, so, but there's one Jew, probably the same Jew, maybe a different Jew, same kind of Jew, the Amaret, who gets him and says, I got this, I got this, I'm going to win this debate. So they let him go, you know, if he wants to risk his life. But he said, he tells the priest, I have one condition. He says, I want to go first. The priest says, sure, go ahead, no problem. So the, this Jew is standing on one edge of the bridge, and there's a guard next to him. If he doesn't know the answer, he's going to get pushed off. The priest is on the other side of the bridge, and he's got a, a guard next to him who's going to push him off if he doesn't know the answer. And the Jew says, translate, Anochi lo yadati. And the priest says, I didn't know. And they pushed him off the bridge. So... The Jews are celebrating, this is great, this is whatever, right? The, 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 the priest is gone. So they said to the Jew afterwards, that's brilliant, right? Asking Anochi lo yadati, he says, I didn't know. They pushed him off the How did you think of this? He says, it's really, it's very simple. I remember when I was a little kid in school, when the Rebbe was teaching this part of the, of the Torah, when he said, Anochi lo yadati, Right, when Yaakov said, um, um, my Rebbe said, I didn't know. So my Rebbe didn't know. So I went 
later that day, I took Mashlumash, I went to the principal, and I said, my Rebbe doesn't know the translation of Anochi Lo Yadati, you know what the translation is. And the principal told me I didn't know. So I said, my Rebbe doesn't know these words, the principal doesn't know these words, so I, I'm going to go to the rabbi of my synagogue and ask him. And he also said I didn't know. Then I went to the chief rabbi of the city, and he didn't know. So it says this Jew, listen, to all the other Jews. If my Rebbe and my principal and my rabbi and the chief rabbi of the town didn't know the translation of Anochi Lo Yadati, then this priest is also not going to know it. <laughs> so th- these, th- these stories are rich in our tradition. And I'll tell you, I was surprised hearing these, these stories as kids. I remember, I remember when I, first time I heard this, um, I was thinking to myself, you know, I've got to make sure that I know all of Tanakh, right, in case such a thing happens. Of course, these debates don't really happen. But there is a statement in the Talmud, in Chagiga, Dafhei Amud Bet, where the Talmud tells us, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania havikai be'kesar. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania was in the court of Caesar, the king of Rome. There was a certain heretic who made a signal that you are a nation that your God has turned his face away from you. Meaning at the Roman emperor's court Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania is standing there and one of the heretics looks across and makes the following movement turns his face away as if to say God has turned his face away from you. I want you to understand, the, the silent debates that I was making a joke, there's an actual incident recorded in the Talmud. Achvileh, so Rabbi Shoban Hanania went like this, meaning to say, even though he turned his face, he still has his hand out, reach out reaching out to protect us. So the Kesar, the emperor, sees this. And says to Rabbi Yeshua, what happened? What was this conversation? So he says to him, um, he, he showed me that God has turned his face away, and I showed him that God is still uh, prote- um, protecting us. Then he asks the heretic. He says, well, what happened in this debate? So he says, well, I told him that God turned his face away. And he says, and what did he answer you? He says, I didn't understand his answer. The heretic did not understand Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania's answer. So the king tells him, "Gavra malka." If you don't know how to do a silent debate, you dare to debate in front of the king. In other words, the king appreciates that there are conversations happening that don't disturb his court. But if you're going to do this without knowing what you're doing, then you don't deserve to be in the court of the king. You have to know how to do a silent debate. And therefore, they took out this heretic and they killed him. Right? So, so you see that these, this is a real thing. In the courts of kings, there are conversations that take place. And the king wants that there should be communication in his courts. But it better be done professionally and expertly. Don't bring your amateur understanding of things into the king's court. And this is where our class today begins. Because our class today, I remember when I first read this debate between Reb Lippmann Milhausen and, and the apostate Peter, 
I was astounded at how stupid this debate is. I'll explain what I mean. It means that this idiot apostate, who is, was a Jew, but decided to become a Christian, and then decided not only is he going to be a Christian, but he's going to be more religious than every other Christian, and he's going to come and prove the Jews wrong. Not only does he do all that, but he's also an idiot, in, in almost every sense of the word. And so when we're going to read this debate, it sounds like this guy, um, who we're going to call Peter, his, uh, Jew, he was originally Pesach, but he changed his name to Peter, um, is a really, really doesn't know anything. And, and the fact that the Jews are responding in a way that doesn't really give credibility, I, I, it, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read first from the debate, and then you'll understand what I'm saying. So this... Yeah, so this debate takes place in the, in the year 1399, in Poland. Uh, uh, And this is about the time when it was very popular to have debates between Jews and priests. And especially in in Europe, this was something which um, the apostates, the former Jews, wanted to get on the better side of the Christians. So if they could prove that they were more from in their um, Christianity. So the area that they're debating is in the parts of the prayer in our davening, in the tefillah, that seem to be against the Christians. So he begins like this. Yes. I think in the Torah it says that we can take So it's interesting. There are, there are certain... Um, repeating narratives. There are certain questions that come up in every debate. Here, they're specifically debating tefillah, so that's not going to come up. But amongst those many debates, that issue, which you just raised, which is that um, the Torah does not allow us to take ribit from a Jew, but uh, allows us to take ribit interest from a non-Jew. So that's actually, most famously, that answer was given by the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel said this to the king of Spain, said that really everyone should take rebit. Because when I give you money, I could use that money to make more money, and instead I'm giving it to you, I should be able to charge you the money that I could have made with it. It's just the Ababnel says, the Torah tells us that from your brother you don't take rebit. So the exception is the Jew, because they're our brothers, we don't take rebit. But for a non-Jew, we don't take rebit because we don't like them. We take rebit because you're supposed to take rebit. Right? That's the famous answer of the Abba Rabbanel. The solution is why in Israel there are Jewish banks and they take rebit. Right, right. They we take loans in Israel. We take Israel. Right, right. That gets into a whole hatteriska. But here's how it begins. So the first argument that Peter raises against us is, Atem omrim ba'alenu l'shabeach you say in Aleinu L'Shabeach, Shehem Mishtachavim Lahevel V'Larik. Arik, Varik, Vav, Resh, Yud, Kuf. Which is the numerical value of 316. Vav, Resh, Yud, Kuf. Which is the same numerical value as Yeshu. And then you say, Umitpalalim, El El Lo Yoshia. 
And then you say, meaning you're praying for the downfall and the destruction of, of our religion. So this is what the rabbi, Rabbi Milhausen, answers him. He says, one second, you all agree with me that we're not supposed to pray to Eitzvah Evan. You all agree with me that we only pray to God and we don't pray to sticks and stones. You know, you know amongst the Christians that there are those who think that the cross with the statue on it is God. And you, I see you priests running around telling people that's not God, it's just an image of God, it's just a representation of God. Is that true? And Peter says, yes, that's true. So he says, then you say it too, just like us. You, you're also saying that um, there are those who pray to emptiness and nothing. Um, and and um, El Elo Yoshia, you're also complaining about people who are bowing to sticks and stones. So he says, okay, you're, you're explaining that part, but you're not explaining the part where you say Varik, which is a reference to Yeshu. So the rabbi says to him, um, Yeshu, Yud Shin Vav, who said that's his name? He says, we... In the, uh, we refer to him as Yeshua, Yud Shin Vav Ayin, and you refer to him as Jesus. So who calls him Yeshu? So he said, he said that um, MS, um, that we call, they, the, he said, the meaning the Peter said, we call him Yeshua because um, Yeshua means the Savior, and he's the one who saves us. So I said to him, when, when you're speaking, you're showing you know nothing, because Yeshua, Yeshua, Yudshin Vav Ayin Hei, is from the same word as Menucha, the same structure. So you can't have Yeshua, which would be the same as Yeinuach, which makes no sense. He says the whole word itself doesn't even make sense. So therefore, I don't need to respond to your question of Varik, because it's not a reference to Jesus. That's, that's what the rabbi says. Now, the thing is that we do say that Varik is a reference to Jesus. Because Yud Shin Vav is also Rashi Tevot Yemach Shemo V'Zichro. And, and that's pretty harsh, right? That's very harsh. Right? So, the rabbi's lying to this apostate. He's lying to him. He's telling him that Varik, not only is he telling him Varik doesn't mean Jesus, but he's, he's even making arguments why it couldn't mean him. Like, you're an idiot for even thinking that we mean him. And actually we do. Or certainly this rabbi did. But I have another question. Isn't this humiliating to the Goyim that we tell that Varik, for example, I will translate it as emptiness. That they daven for emptiness. And they daven for... No, please repeat the question because we can't hear it. Yeah, I'll repeat the question when I, when I give because the answer. it shows that we are 
we, you know, it's a Yeah, I, I think the question is a fair question. Why do we say Lehevel Varik? Why do we have to put people down anyway? Yeah. Right? The, the, the answer is that, you know, in the Torah, the Torah tells us that there's one God, and, and, and that you're supposed to serve one God, and that the world wants to run away and hide from God and wants to do its own thing because they don't want to fulfill their responsibilities towards God and so they have these avodah zarot, these strange services, they worship sticks and stones and the Jewish people were always enticed towards it for some reason, we were always dragged down into avodah zarot and it's craziness, we don't really understand why they were dragged into it, but they did and so in order to teach us not to, we have to remind ourselves that you're standing in front of a, a statue and you're praying to a statue and it's for us. We're not talking to them. We're talking to God and we're talking to each other. It's not meant for some other nation to look at our books and say, what, it, what is it that we're praying? Praying is private. So we are reminding ourselves and telling ourselves that even though out there in the world there are people who um, worship other things, that that's, that's Hevel Varik. And, and so if it's a personal thing, it's not like we go out there and teach this. So I, I, I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's so bad. Um, okay. He says, he, furthermore, he says, um, okay, I, I'm going to skip over this part because we're not going to have time, where he goes into the, the historical breakdown of when exactly did Jesus live, because there seems to be two, two separate times. I'm going to skip over all that. So, so, he says, the, the rabbi says, Odamartilo, I said like this, don't you know that he's called Yesho Hanotsuri? What does Notsuri mean? Oh, between me and you, Notsuri means Nazareth, right? Yeah. right. But he says, Notsuri means he's Notsar Nivra. He's a creation. So he says, I don't understand you. You call him Yeshua Notsuri. Notsuri means that he's a creation and a human being. How can you even believe that he's God? So this Peter has no answer. Now how could it be that an apostate doesn't know that Notsuri means from Nazareth? The answer is that, and this is the point that I'm trying to make with today's class, is that sometimes when we have to have a debate... Sometimes we're not debating with smart people. Sometimes we're debating with idiots. And we have a rule, which means that with smart people, you have to be able to debate with them with intelligence. And with stupid people, you have to be able to debate with them in stupidity. And sometimes it's a lot harder to debate someone in stupidity than it is to debate someone with intelligence. And that's why... And that's why, you know, in, the, in all these cases, it's the stories of the, the, the simple Jew who wins, because sometimes you have more success with, a, with silliness and with stupidity than you have with all the brains in the world. And the Jews have to have this kind of skill. I, I, there are, I can't even mention that. I wish I had enough time. I want to get through all of this. To, but to, to tell stories of, of, of debates which took place, which were just pure silliness, just... How, how is someone so stupid to ask such silly questions? But if you don't give them answers to their silly questions, then, then we're the ones who are in trouble. And so this is a good example of this. He's debating, he's debating a fool. 
and he's got to debate him on his level. So um, he continues. He says, the, Jew, um, the, the rabbi says to him, he says, furthermore, it says in the New Testament that Jesus said, I have not come to change anything that says in the Torah, but only to fulfill what it says in the Torah. And it says in the Torah, meaning it says in the Torah, don't have any graven images. So therefore, we say, we're not referring to you regular Christians. We're referring to the Christians who worship the statues and the images like the same way that you complain against them, we complain against them. So the rabbi writes in this debate, Amar HaPeter Chamor. Continued the Peter Chamor, referring to Peter. You say in your tefillah, V'lamal Shinim Al Tikva, but they didn't have in, in 1399 in Poland, they had v'lameshumadim al tikva, v'chalaminim kerega yovedu. What are minim? Minim. Well, komrim. Kofrim, aval komrim gam. The priests. Kamarim. Well, we say in Aramaic, but yeah. And then you say, "V'chol oyeve amcha mehera yikaretun u'machut zadon mehera ta'aker u'tshaber." This is in your tefillah. It's all against the Christians. So he says, no, 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 "Let's let's take it like this." No. Again, I want you to realize that he's 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 not giving him the true answers, right? He's he's playing word games with him, and uh, hopefully, I'll have a little bit of time to get into this because it's very important. The the concept much more than the debate. So he says to him, Mishumadim, what happens when a Jew converts to Christianity? Do you let him change his mind and come back to Judaism? And Peter said, of course not. So he says, so when you have Mishumadim who go from Judaism to Christianity, Atem lo notnim lo lachzor, you don't allow him to come back, right? The, priest, the Peter says, no, we don't let them come back. He says, also, we don't want them back. The rabbi says, we don't want them back. So, stay there. You want to be a Christian, be a Christian. So, we're in agreement. You want them to stay as Christians, and we want them to stay as Christians. But even, even it's not against the halacha, because even if a Jewish becomes Christian... Now, if a Jew becomes Christian, it is against halacha, it is considered avodah zarah. Because Christianity believes in the Trinity, and um, one of our 13 principles of faith, one of the Yud Gimel Ikarim, is that HaKadosh um, Baruch Hu is Echad Yachid Umyuchad, and so there's no, uh, there's no Trinity. So believing in the Trinity is idol worship, although the Ramah, Rav Moshe Israelis, who is the um, source for Halakha, for the Ashkenazim for sure, he says clearly that Christianity is only considered Avodah Zarah for Jews. Because we have the requirement to believe that the Borei Olam is Echad Yachidim Yuchad. But a non-Jew is not required to have the same understanding of what it means that there is a God. And if they believe that there is one God, but He's three, but He's one, but He's three, that's okay for them. They're not required to understand 
and believe Echad Yachidim Yuchad, which is why we say, Kol Ish Yelchu B'Shem Elokav, right, that they follow their, you know, we believe that a good law-abiding Christian, Yesh Lo Chelek Lo right, Chasidei Omot Olam, they're not considered over the Avodazara. But if a Jew becomes a Christian, he is considered an Oved Avodazara, and that's going to be a bravo. So that's why he's saying, you, you're complaining that we're saying, V'la Meshumadim Al-Tiyitikva, that... that you don't want them to have tikva either. You want them to stay Christians. We want them to go and stay. So we're both in agreement. So when we say, B'chal ha-minim, we don't mean Christians. Minim. What does minim mean? So usually it's translated as like uh, different sects, right? Um, different groups. Different... So he says, um, minim actually means B'nei Adam Shehem HaMishnei Minim Koloma Shehem Mesupakim B'nei Munat HaYehudim B'nei Munat HaGoyim Meaning When it says Minim Minim actually means People Who can't make their mind up Those who are Poschim Ashtei Asivim Those who are going back and forth on both sides That's what we mean Hareilu Yovedu Because they can't make their mind up. Now, that's not true. Minim means Christians, and it means priests. In fact, our tradition tells us that the word min, spelled mem yud nun, is rashe tevot mitamidei yeshu notsuri. Min. And, and so he's lying to him, and telling him that minim means those who are undecided and they keep going back and forth. So, when we say amcha, the enemies of your people, they should be destroyed. Who is amcha? Who is the am of Hashem? You believe the Christians are, are the am Hashem, right? So when you say amcha you're also praying for the enemies of God to be destroyed, and we're praying for the enemies of God. Whoever is amcha, their oyevim should be destroyed. So we didn't say the Christians should be destroyed. We daven, we pray in our prayers, and if Amcha is the Jews, then the enemies of the Jews should be destroyed. If the, if the Amcha is the Christians, then the enemies of the Christians should be destroyed. But we're both in agreement that the words are good. It says, Malchut Zadon that's what you're complaining about us in our prayers. You know, everybody knows, it says in the Talmud, There is an obligation, a rabbinical obligation, for Jews to pray for the welfare of the government, the, the country that they are living in. It has always been our tradition, and in every Sidur, there is a bracha, mishaberach, to be made for the government of the land that we are living in. Which means that we believe that when we are living in a country, we're supposed to want their well-being, we're supposed to pray for their welfare. So why would our sages, the same sages who put that in the tefillah, why would they say that we should destroy the the Malchut Zadon? The answer is because there are illegitimate governments. 
There are sometimes people who take power who shouldn't have power. Sometimes you have people who become kings just in order to destroy the world. Take a look at what happened in Germany in the, in the 30s and go back to, you know, all, all, um, every gener- there are always people who rise to power with the intention of evil and that's what we mean when we say Malchut Zadon. But that's not what we mean. When we say Malchut Zadon, we are referring to the Malchut that destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, that refers to the Holy Roman Empire, which carries on until this day. And uh, so, so we do mean them, and again, the rabbi is lying to him. And what's interesting is that this Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't seem to, to catch on. There's a few more examples. I'm going to try to go through them quickly, because I want to bring this back to where we're going with all of this. But you see that it was the role of the Jews to defend ourselves from, uh, on every, and people would, I mean, he's, he's going through the davening, through the prayers, with a fine-tooth comb, trying to find everything that can be interpreted against, against the, um, as a bad sign for the Jews. But again, one more time, he's an idiot. So it's so easy to dismiss him. But if the rabbi would have gotten, gotten into complicated discussions with him, he would have lost the debate. It's only because he's playing the silly game that, that he ends up winning the debate. And uh, uh, before I go on, let me actually, uh, I don't know how long this is going to take, so let's take a few minutes. And I, I, I want to hear what, what your thoughts are on two issues. Number one, number one, which is, what do we think of, what are we supposed to think about when we see this happening? This kind of silliness. And it is. It's just silliness. Because it's no different than the matzah and the apple. This is the same thing. It's just a little more complexity. But it's not a real debate. There's no conversation happening. He, he tells him, you guys say this in the prayer. And he tells him, oh, oh, what that, that doesn't mean this. That means that. And he's like, okay, that's it. That, what, do, what, do we, what, what does that mean, these kinds of debates? And number two, is it really okay to lie like this? Is it okay to claim that when we say this, we mean that? Or are we misrepresenting ourselves by, by using untruths? Now, you could say, well, our life depends on it. But still, d- does that mean that we have to defend ourselves with lies? So, th- these are two separate questions. Um, any, any thoughts on this? The Jews were directed into it. They did not choose it. I mean, life was, you know, like an escape. Either you go back and you debate with them, or you lose your life. Okay, so that's an interesting point you're making. Let me repeat it for those who are listening. you know what you can apply for today as well? We have to explain and we have to apologize for living in Israel, for wiping a Jewish state. It's the same thing. Thank you. Yes, yes. Jews have to apologize and Jews have to justify the being in the world, although it's a constitution. Just, you know. Yes, absolutely. Again, uh, people can't hear you, so let me repeat what you said. You're making two points. Number one, we didn't ask for these debates. Uh, They're the ones challenging us. Challenging us all the time. And so, so we don't owe them anything. We don't owe them the truth. They can't handle the truth. uh, We we don't owe them anything. Um, We, we, they chose to make this debate. That's number one. Number two, 
and I think that's a very valid point you're making, is that for some reason the whole world feels like the Jews are constantly needing to defend themselves. Right? The other nations, there are nations in the world that out there and they say we want to wipe the Jews off the map. They don't have to defend their existence or their statements, and their leaders are still on Twitter tweeting death to the Jews, right? It's, it, it's, but if a Jew, chas v'shalom, should say anything, so the, 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 the way the world exists is set up in a way that's like this. So you know what? Maybe we should be allowed to play games um, with, with the truth, because we are. We're smarter than them, and so we can play the game in, in a way that's better, and, and maybe we're entitled to do that. I, I think it's a valid point. I should tell you. Why do we need to apologize for that? Why do we need to apologize? Why do we need to If we don't. I feel I have to apologize that I live here and not in Israel. Right. So the, the question is, does the world, why does the world want us, n- expect from us these apologies? A- and what would happen if we wouldn't? What would have happened if all those years we would have refused to apologize? Would we still exist? Or would we have been wiped out? Would the pogroms have been worse? Oh, or, would, or maybe it would have been the other way. You know, what if, you know, you never know. But, but it, it, it is very strange that we're always on the defense. Always on the defense. I'll tell you this. When I was a, a little kid, back in Cheder, like five, six, seven years old, the, the games that we played on the playground, this, this is going to sound a little bit scary, but it was me. I was in the school playground. played a game called Galachim. This is the way the game goes. Um, there are two sides, one fence and the other fence. And in, the, in between is the open field, the school yard. One kid is the Galach. Galach, of course, is a, is a monk or a priest, right? A comer. Yeah. And the boys have to run across from one side of the field to the other side of the field. And if the Galach touches you, you become a Galach's helper. And then you are now running around catching all the little boys. And then the last one that's standing, that's not yet been caught by any of the, by the Galach or by the Galach's helpers, is the winner. Where does such a game come from? You know where it comes from? Because for a thousand years, we had to teach our little children, don't let the priest grab you. Because if they grabbed a Jewish child, they, what could you do? You go to the authorities, and the authorities will say, well, the church is in charge. So if your child was grabbed, they were gone. But not only that, the priests knew who to grab. They would take the kid who's the troubled kid, the kid who's a troublemaker, whose parents are very poor, and they would offer him food and sweets, and they would offer him a grand life. If what? If he will convince three other boys to come. So how do we train our children, run. We play this game, so in the 20th century, I was a kid, and we're still playing Galachim, to avoid, to train little kids' minds to run away from the Galach and from his helpers, who are other boys who were caught by the Galach. Right, it's a Tachbula, training little kids, right? But I'm thinking about the 
and Israel has to defend against the people who are clearly making up stories. And you have to defend and you have to make sure that the language we are using right. is a language that goes parallel. Right. We, we can't tell, when, when someone says a story about us, we can't respond with the truth, which is what everyone's trying to do. They're trying to present the truth. And what this debate of Rabbi Milhausen against Peter teaches us is that you're not going to win with the truth against lies. Because we're going to lose. You have to learn to fight the fight on their playing field. And, and unfortunately, the Jews have not done so. We haven't learned propaganda. We haven't learned how to play games in the way that the rest of the world plays games. And that may be what Rabbi Milhausen is trying to teach us. He records this debate for us. What do I need this? It's Mamash Tuyot, some of this, right? Where he tells him that Minim doesn't mean priests. It means people who can't make their mind up. I'm going to share with you a little more. He says to him, you refer to our God as Talui. What does Talui mean? Hanging, right? The hangman. So he says, you refer to him as Talui. So the rabbi says, no, 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 that's not what it means. Talui doesn't mean hanging. Have you ever heard of an Asham Talui? An Asham Talui is a korban, an offering that you bring when you don't know if you committed a, a sin or not. If you know you committed a sin, then you bring a korban chatat. If you don't know, then you bring what's called an asham talui, which means talui means that we don't know. And Judaism, we know because everyone agrees. But Christianity and Islam, some people say yes, some people say no, so we call it talui. (laughs) what's shocking to me is that Peter doesn't have an answer because he, he's like oh I'm the idiot right I thought that Talui means this then he tells him well you refer to our crackers as Lechem Tameh and you refer to it as Zevel Tameh ah pretty harsh so the rabbi says, Ah, oh, you're such a fool. Where do you keep your bread? In the, in, the, in the church. You know what else you keep in the church? Your tombs, the kvarim. Everybody knows that dead bodies make food tameh. So if you have dead bodies in the church, it's lechem tameh. <laughs> and when it comes to zevel, zevel tameh, Zevel, Zevel is not a Hebrew word. Nowhere in the Torah will you see the word Zevel used. It only uses the word Soah. Zevel, Ezevel, but not Zevel. Yeah, he says, but Zevel, you know what Zevel is? Zevel is a beautiful home. Bono baniti bayit zevul lach. So we call you Zevel Tameh is because you have dead bodies in such a beautiful building. So it's Zavul, a beautiful building, and then it's Tameh, because you put dead bodies in it. Only a Jewish boy could do that. <laughs> yeah, so... Now, no question, no wisdom. Right. So, it, right, this is very different. We, this is what, a 17th debate that we've seen. 
16 of them are intellectual, smart, people thinking deeply. This is just people... It's, it's silliness. But it's, it's amazing, and I think uh, all of you have made this point today, that more of our debates take place on this plane than on the intellectual plane. We have more debates that take place over Twitter, over, over um, social media, and, and in the world at large, over, over twisted and, and um, you know, changed information. That's where more, most of our debates take place. Um, you, um, he says, well, what about you refer to our bread, sometimes in your books, as lechem megoal. Right, megoal meaning disgusting. So he says, megoal, it's may goel. Because you call them from the Redeemer, and according to you, again, the same, same little play on words, there's a, there's a few more of these. I don't want to go through the, you know, some of them get a little, a little more technical. But the rabbi ends up winning the debate. But did he win? Did he win? Right? It, it, he, we, we got away with it. We, we twisted everything back in their faces. But are, are we proud of a debate like this? I don't know. But listen to this statement. It's not a real victory because the fact that we have to debate even today means that Right. So, so our only victory in reality is that we're still here. Right. That's why my my grandmother used to take out her. You know, she should have a, a lichtige ganeden. She used to take out the photo album, and when she finished looking at it, she would lift it up and she'd say, um, Hitler, I won. Right? You tried to um, wipe me out, and here's my family. And uh, so that's our victory. But, but it's a painful victory, because it involves... And these debates aren't really victories on their own, because even when we have an intellectual victory, still fo- that's still followed. Right? We won in, in the debates in Paris of the, of the 1240s. We won, and the reward was that the Talmud was burned in the public square. Right? When, when the Ramban wins his debate, he was rewarded that he was allowed to run without anyone catching him. Right? We're going to give you permission to run. Right? Th- this is, so we're not looking to win these debates at, in order to change anyone's mind. What we're looking is to, to kind of stave off the opposition and keep people away. But, but we, there's got to be some semblance of victory in it. And, and what I want to suggest is that maybe what we did win was, was the sense of pride that for ourselves, maybe not for the nations of the world, but when we win, we kind of enjoy these stories of our victory, of how we outsmarted our enemies. And there's something very special about these stories of the simple Jew who wins, wins the debate against, against the priest, as if to say, and that's part of it, is that the Jewish people have emunah. That no matter what, how dangerous the situation is, we will survive. Am Yisrael Chai, the Kayam, that the Jewish people will overcome whatever, and we have. We've outlived all of these things, and all these people have wanted to wipe us out, and they've tried to wipe us out. And these stories 
are representation of our continued victory one way or another whether we're winning because the greatest debater in the world um, you know, w- wins like the Ramban in his brilliant victory at Barcelona or whether it's Rabbi Lippmann Milhausen who's playing little word games with this idiot apostate either way we are proud of our ability to stand before our challengers and face them and continue to survive what was the consequences among the Jews? Did they, if, I mean, this uh, they won, whatever other the Jews did. Right, so how, how it affected the Jews? Did somebody say, some of them said, because I'm looking at now, anti-Zionism is also among Jews, among yes. Israelis too. So if the debate are affecting people who are good people. Yeah, yeah. That's, people. that's a very good point. Yeah, exactly. And when we have these debates, part of it is for Can the you Jew- repeat what was said? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to repeat the question. But basically, the, the, the point that she was making was that um, how, um, how many Jews were affected when we won the debate or when we lost the debate, how did that affect us, especially when we see the debate that's going on today in the world about the status of the Jews, and you see how many Jews who, who are taking the approach that we're losing the debate, and then they're hopping over to the other side and, and starting to say sentiments and ideas that are against um, Jews and against the land of Israel, and, and some of it is because we're kind of losing this debate in the world of silliness, right? We've got all the truth. Right? There they are. We've got pictures of camera, uh, uh, you know, cameras that are uh, showing us that there are um, um, weapons and, uh, and uh, missiles being shot from, from hospitals, from places where, from schools, from places where there are innocent civilians. We have the pictures and we show it to the world and they don't care because they've got pictures that they show of you know, hospitals of being, of, of, of the schools destroyed, right? So, so what happens is so many Jews, they take on, because Jews, one of our biggest superpowers, one of our greatest abilities is to feel guilty. And, and, and we, we use it, we use it on ourselves and we use it as a weapon. Uh, and so what happens is sometimes we cave into the guilt so much that we become anti-Jewish just to alleviate our guilt because we feel guilty on some level for surviving. An amazing thing. How could you feel guilty for surviving? But we feel guilty for that. And maybe we should feel guilty because, because you know, what have we done to make the world a better place? You know, why do we deserve to be so supernaturally saved? Which is what we have. So I've got my explanations, but maybe others don't agree and so they don't understand why the Jews survived. I want to end on this final point. It's, a, it's a, the greatest debater in the Talmud. The greatest of them all is Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, the one who we said before was in the palace of the king. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, the Talmud tells us, it's a long, long story, but he went, he went down to Athens, in Greece, and he broke into the Senate, in, Greece, in, in Athens, with a complicated story that the Talmud describes us, but basically he had like a whole spy secret mission and he broke in there and that was without any of Tom Cruise's cool gadgets, you know, to come down from the ceiling and everything. He he, he breaks into the Senate of Athens and he challenges the entire Senate of Athens to a debate. And it's amazing, the world would know. We have a word 
word-for-word recording of the entire debate in the Talmud. Not one word of it makes sense. It's all weird talk. But we have every word recorded. Rabbi Shulam and Hanani came back and he wrote word-for-word. They asked questions like, like uh, how do you harvest when you have a field that's, and it grows, but, in, but what grew up is knives. So how do you harvest a field of knives? That's what they asked Rabbi Shulam and Hanani. And he said, you all know this, right? With a karen from a chamor. With the horn of a donkey. <laughs> what are they talking about? There are a hundred, maybe a thousand interpretations that we have for what they were actually debating. But we have a full page of this recording. A, a full page of the Talmud that tells us the, the full um, what, transcript of the debate. It makes no sense, but all the commentaries, for many commentaries, the Vilna Gaon wrote a famous commentary on it, explaining what the truth of the debate was. So when Rabbi Shua Hanani was dying, this is a, a statement of the Talmud, Ki kanicha nafshe Rabbi Shua Hanani. Rabbi Hanani is on his deathbed. Amru le Rabbanan, the rabbi said to him, Mai teheve alon miapikursin. What will we do with all the heretics? You are our champion. You're the greatest debater of the Jewish people. What are we going to do when you're gone? Amar Laham, he quoted to them from Yirmiyahu chapter 49. Which means, When the Jews lose their wise men, then the nations of the world also lose their wise men. And and it means that God always keeps a balance. When the Jews lose their great debaters, the nations of the world will also lose their great debaters. Now, the simple understanding of this statement in the Talmud is that God says, listen, if there's going to be someone very smart in the world who's going to be dangerous to you, I'll send you a Jew who's very smart. When, when the rest of the world is stupid, so th- when Rosh Hashanah goes, you know what that means? That the rest of the world, they're, they're not going to have their, their great debaters. That's, that's the simple understanding of this statement in the Talmud. But on a deeper level, is that this Rabbi Shua Ben-Hanani is saying, don't worry about it. You don't need to be a great debater. You just need to understand what the world is needing, what they need to hear and respond to them. You don't need to be brilliant. Sometimes you just need to think about what the right thing to say is as, and how to say it, and not so much to come up with some clever, brilliant explanation for how things work. I'll tell you a personal story. Personal story. I, 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 when I was, this was back, I was in yeshiva, and uh, I encountered someone who um, told me that they had joined uh, Jews for Jesus. So I, I said to him, I said to him, what happened? So he tells me, he tells me, this is a true story, this happened to me. He tells me, do you eat apples? So I understood he was speaking metaphorically, right? He means, do I commit sins? So I said, everybody eats apples, but we try our best. He said, I once stood outside the fruit store, and I watched Jews going in all day, coming out with bags of apples. (laughs) So then, it hits me. One second. He's talking about real apples, right? I'm thinking that he's some smart guy speaking in metaphors about apples and, and this. He's talking about actual apples. I said to him, you know, you know the tree, the for, forbidden fruit was not an apple. He says, what do you mean? 
I said, well, it was, we use apple, but it doesn't say in the Torah it was an apple. If anything, our tradition tells us that either it was an etrog, or it was, it was a gefen, or, or is it teena, right? Or, or chitim, there's different opinions. But nobody says it was an apple. And he looks at me like, what are you talking about? And I realized that here I was, you know, I'm a yeshiva boy, and I'm, I'm looking to um, show my, my knowledge of, and this guy's an idiot. And, and the, in the world of disputes, we have to realize that sometimes you're going to come up against someone who's just plain stupid. And if you want to win, you can't be smart. You have to be stupid as well. You have to be silly and you have to be willing to play on, down on someone's level. And this is true in a debate about the world. This is also true in debates in life. Sometimes, we have to know when, but sometimes a dispute asks us to return to the level of childhood, of na-na-na-na-na, no, that, that's what you are, what am I, kind of childish debates, and sometimes that's, what, that's what's required. Right? Wait, what's the, I don't understand, what's the connection between the apple and Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 